Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Hello, my guest today is Ted Moyamus, a lawyer, academic and consultant researcher and fellow at the University of Oxford. His work focuses on mitigating climate change through the transition to a low carbon economy. In his work, he investigates the impact of law on various energy technologies and projects in sub-Saharan Africa, the UK and the Middle East. Ted, the energy crisis we are facing seems to further damage trust and the foundations of the just transition. It's more relevant than ever to clarify the legal framework and processes that influence climate change mitigation. So welcome for this very timely discussion and thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Marine, and I'm really glad to be here. Looking forward to having a, a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Ted. So, Ted, tell me more about you. What brought you to the place you are now? Why this topic? Well, this is a, a rather interesting question. So, before I moved to the UK about seven years ago, I was a practicing lawyer in Kenya. I was looking at energy systems, amongst other things like commercial law. And my mom comes from an indigenous background. And at the time, there were energy projects, they were doing power lines that were going through community land. And members of the community, you know, came to my office to ask for advice on what to do. And unfortunately, I couldn't help them for a variety of reasons. One of them was that I was conflicted. I was either acting for government or some of the private par parties that were involved in some of those projects. But secondly, I had a look <laughs> at some of these contracts and they were ridiculously complex. And a lot of the people who were coming, some of them did not have much in the way of education. And I just thought, who's drafted this? So when I tried to do a bit of research to see which law firm had drafted this so that I could have a word with them, I was amazed because I discovered at the time, which is about slightly more than seven years ago, that about 90-something percent of the law firms doing big-ticket work in energy in sub-Saharan Africa, were based out of London. Wow. And so that came as a surprise to me. And I thought, look, uh, probably one of the things that I need to do is get a better grounding. And that brought me to London. I went to the Queen Mary University of London to do a master's in energy and natural resources law, followed up with a PhD, and now I'm working at the University of Oxford. And my interest in this topic is energy is the foundation for what we call modern life. Mm -hmm. And the legal frameworks um, are usually an afterthought. You know, this community came to me at the very tail end of a problem that was there. And part of the problem was not just purely legal. Part of it was political, part of it was about land rights and so on. And so what was quite obvious to me is that law can be either a, an enabler or a huge barrier to having people access modern energy services and can be a barrier to justice itself. And so I've, apart from a, just a general interest in energy and ensuring that people develop and develop sustainably, one of the things that became quite obvious to me, and I'm now more convinced than ever, is that if we get the legal 
framework or policy or regulation wrong, it is very, very difficult to have effective energy systems and it's very difficult to have modern life as we know it in a sustainable way. That's the path that led me here. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, there are in, in Europe, there are discussions over the Energy Charter Treaty. We had uh, Yamina Saheb a few uh, episodes ago who warned about this uh, treaty as a threat to climate change uh, mitigation practices. But it's really the first time that I hear about this kind of practice in sub-Saharan Africa. I've been working for now a couple of years in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and I feel that sometimes it's very much like the wild west when it's about uh, uh, setting up some projects and contracts and uh, communities are not very likely to be consulted and what are your like thoughts on that what did you do after finding out uh, that all those bad contracts that were putting indigenous communities at risk were were set up what did you do and what would be let's say your recommendation of all for better practices Oh, I came to this show hoping the questions will not be as difficult as they are. <laughs> But on, on a much more serious note, I think this problem is systemic. Yeah. It is a complex question. Energy systems themselves are quite complex, not just at the local level in developing countries, and even at local level in a developed country such as this one, and we have global value chains. So I think the first thing that we must recognize is that these are systemic problems and will therefore need overarching solutions in terms of thinking. So one needs to step back and have a look at what are the key global problems, what are our shared problems, and then what are our shared principles. Mm -hmm. And then apart from just doing that overarching thing, and that's why places like the COP, uh, the COPs, you know, the UNFCCC process, which is the largest climate change conference and caucus every year. Some people criticize it, but I think it's also important at that global level to start thinking what are our shared problems. And climate change is clearly one of them. Someone put it quite beautifully and rather simply. They said, it doesn't matter where you are. We're all under the same sun. And clearly this past summer, I'm, I'm not sure where you are, Marine, at the moment. I'm in Oxford. It's raining at the moment. We are back to default settings. But the last few months, are possibly the hottest I have ever felt, not just in the UK, but anywhere in the world. So clearly we have shared problems. So that's the first thing to recognize what is our shared fate globally. But at the same time, and I'm glad you've worked in sub-Saharan Africa, is also to get nuance. When we talk about these shared problems and when we talk about this shared fate, we also, and principles, we need to start thinking What is the minimum acceptable standard in which we are willing to accept in how we treat the environment, in how humans need to access energy services, and in how we prioritize our financing? So at the local level, we also need to empower people because sometimes a lot of interventions are well-intentioned interventions, like the contracts I spoke about. Some of those contracts were aimed at ensuring that electricity is delivered to a larger percentage of the population. But in having a good aim, there were knock-on effects that were quite negative to communities. And there's something called under-the-grid poverty, which I'm sure you know quite well about, is you have all these power lines and greens running over people's homes, but they're not connected to electricity. Now, back to the law, and you spoke of the Energy Charter Treaty. I was one of those people who was quite optimistic about 
you know, 10-ish years ago about the Energy Charter Treaty expanding beyond the OECD. And I know there is the International Energy Charter, which has been an attempt to try and do that. But one thing that is patently clear, a centralized system is going to be quite difficult, especially on a global scale where we have disparate and different and sometimes conflicting energy systems. So rather than attempting to coalesce and have a centralized system, perhaps what we need are centralized aims. And that's why something like the Sustainable Development Goals, although they have their criticisms, um, help people to have the same goalposts in which to aim. And I think perhaps, and this is a rather long-winded answer to your question, one, we must recognize that these are systemic problems. Two, the solutions must be able to be discussed at a global level, but applied at the local level. Because more often than not, we have all these overarching themes that have absolutely disconnected from the local level. The other thing is we need to have nuance and realize that although we have similar, we have a shared fate and we have similar objectives, we have different realities. And so we need to see what resources exist in different parts of the world and how can we transition from where we are, because in Europe, we are transitioning from it's a developed market, it's just that it's fossil fuel intensive. In many developing countries, people don't have access to the most basic of things. And so we need to see that, look, we're not at the same developmental level and we don't have the same problems, which now takes me back to you, which is it's how to communicate these things that will determine how successful we are. Because a lot of the messaging does not resonate with a lot of people, either in developed or developing countries. And this disconnect is why a show such as this one is so important, where different voices come together to communicate to a much broader audience. So I I thank you for setting up something like this. Yeah, this is very, very important to remember that indeed the challenges that we are facing are global and basically the solutions might be global. It's It comes from uh, renewable energy sources, but we need also to dig up some raw materials and they might be in the regions that are that you are mentioning uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, for instance, um, they are very mineral rich, but still a lot of people are lacking access to high quality solar panels and extracting uh, those raw materials might be uh, enormous challenges as well for uh, land and for um, worker conditions as well. So it's really important to really acknowledge that there is no simple answer and that if we want to make the access to electricity a reality for everyone, we also have to take into consideration the particular context. And something that, you know, I found extremely frustrating when I was in Africa last time is that the number of people were mentioning they had access to cheap little solar kits. And those little solar kits, they were really easy to run and they could install it. And then suddenly they had electricity and electricity brightens their life. They are they were really happy to have access to this kind of modernity, although it was very elementary with the Western viewpoint. But for them, it was already quite something and they were really happy about that. But then after a few months, a few years, those kids were they just had to be to be put to the trash and there was no collection point to afford the batteries there was no uh, no follow up and basically it was back to square one or even level zero of the uh, multi-tier framework that assesses the the various level of access to electricity so ted 
What can the law do against this kind of aggressive practices? Let's say it this way. You've um, you've mentioned and touched on some really interesting points there, which I just think I need to echo as well. One, part of the problem that we have is we almost have this adversarial system where there's almost like it's a developing versus developed country um, war. It's almost like thinking you people are there and we're here. But we need to realize that not only are we on the same planet, that some of these problems are shared. And this is the setup to answering your question. The second thing that um, you have also mentioned, and this is really, really important, is on different standards being applied in different parts of the world and having a rather devastating effect. And I'll give an anecdote after I answer your question precisely on that topic. Like when we speak about energy access and when we speak about Sustainable Development Goal 7 on clean, affordable, accessible energy. What exactly are we talking about? I'll just give you an example and then tell you what the law can and cannot do. The I think Global Alliance on Clean Cooking, as of 2020, had spent a billion dollars trying to ensure that households in sub-Saharan Africa have access to clean cooking. As of 2020, late 2020, Kenya, which is uh, the country of my origin, was one of the ones that was performing the best at a whooping percentage of 10%. 10% of the population had access to clean cooking facilities, a billion dollars. And so on the one hand, we're talking about that in Africa where you're supplying cook stoves, yet what the last project I worked on here in Oxford was on smart local energy systems, where we're talking about the next level of running energy systems so efficiently that a demand-side innovation-driven, where you're talking about machine learning, when you're talking about computing, complex issues of data protection. Yet, for maybe a billion people, and this is simply sub-Saharan Africa, we have developing Asia and other parts of the world, where there are serious difficulties. We're talking about a cook stove. Will we have the same level of development or if we do not have the same sort of standards or something that we're talking about? So one of the things that the law does, and now I'm answering your question, is that the law establishes standards, empirical standards. The law establishes rules, regulations, and standards that have to be followed. So whereas goals are aspirational, law is usually enforceable. So it's one thing to have a good goal. If nothing is attained, then there are no consequences. What the law does, it makes these aspirations actionable. And so one of the things that ideally must happen is when we speak up, and have conversations around energy access, about justice, about climate change, not only must lawyers be in the room, but there must be political will because to pass legislation around the world, whether you're talking about a small county assembly or a municipal uh, assembly, or whether you're talking about the General Assembly of the UN, is that law creates standards and law creates enforceability. And law makes not only people, but corporations and governments do things. What is complex about this topic is that 
we have different energy systems. We have easily, as of the last check, more than 195 different legal jurisdictions around the world. And this then means that if you try and harmonize that, you will follow the least ambitious path. Because when you have too many voices or too many systems, finding the common multiple means you will not take the most ambitious or the most necessary path to achieve action. So my proposition is that we need to have the same legal aims and principles. And once those legal aims and principles are well known and documented, they can infuse any legal system. So instead of looking at changing legal systems, what we need to do is to continually develop and accept and adopt and pass laws that carry certain legal standards and legal principles and legal aims that then will lead to action. Yeah, but that also leads to the question of enforcement. How do you enforce those existing law? You might be aware that I've been working for years on the issue of how vulnerable consumers access rights and access the uh, energy justice in general. There was a podcast last year I recorded about the Just Energy Project with uh, Naomi Crosswell and, and Chris Gill. And we were explored exactly just that, that the most vulnerable part of the population, it was in Western Europe, but uh, the most vulnerable part of the population never make use of the existing rights. So there is a huge enforcement gap that needs to be addressed. So as a, a lawyer, also as an attorney, how would you make that happen? That making sure that the communities really take ownership of these laws to, to, to make their governments and companies accountable? Well, what a brilliant question. I think it could be several things. Number one is resources. Where resources are less, enforcement is usually hampered, especially when you talk about rights or when you talk about infrastructure. And let's not make any mistake whatsoever. The energy system requires heavy investment, transforming the energy system and the energy transition. And it's not just energy. It will need an economy-wide transformation. So the first thing that is needed is money. And when we talk about money, it's clear that different countries or different regions or even different municipalities or different communities have are differently resourced. Some are richer and others are poorer. So the second item that's needed isn't just money, is involvement of all. Whenever we think of a rights-based system, there's a quick answer, which is government, which is the government must enforce, the government must do, but governments have limitations. They have limitations in terms of capacity. They have limitations in terms of reach. And if you look at energy in particular, some of the larger energy companies, whether you talk about oil and gas or electricity companies, their annual turnover is far higher than the GDPs of most or many countries in the world. And so the private sector definitely must be involved. They're not just must be involved to participate. There must be some obligations that flow to the private sector rather than looking at the state as the only duty bearer in this conversation. So there must be involvement of all. The third thing is knowledge. And one of the reasons I'm passionate about academia and community engagement and capacity building is that even the best written laws need people who understand them to apply them. But the community also needs to be aware that these laws exist and need to know what rights there are to enforce them. And so whenever change comes, we also must recognize 
that there are people with a perverse incentive to keep the status quo because it favors them. And so there must be political will, and political will is not just purely about politicians. In boardrooms, People, if one is a shareholder, one needs to go and see, look, is the company in which I'm investing in engaged in sustainable business? So this needs pulling together of all of us. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I think it's it's totally right. So uh, three points, the money, the people, and uh, the willingness, basically. It's uh, it's having like this uh, combination of, of strengths to make things really happen. And I feel that this kind of message is universal because you see that in Europe, we are facing very uh, complicated times with the high energy prices and the, the war in Ukraine and uh, Somehow people are struggling so much or fearing so much inflation and the, the energy price crisis. So it's something that is now on the top of people's mind, whereas maybe a year or two ago it was not as, as important. But it's also a lesson that can be brought to the international level and, for instance, the UN, where uh, we see a lot of blah, blah and sometimes not so much commitment. And the third point is that it's also applicable to whatever the country in the world and even in developing countries. And I think it's it's really important to to have like uh, acknowledge that there are really important and relevant grassroots actions per- coming really from underserved communities and uh, underserved countries. So you mentioned a little bit the seventh SDG uh, goal, so the one on access to clean energy. You said something about uh, clean cook stoves, which is obviously very, very important. Uh, how about the fact that there is, um, I mean, it's a little bit frustrating for me because I've seen so much uh, focus on the SDG goals, focusing on energy for a productive use. Whereas if we see energy only as a tool for productive use, it might have some impacts on, let's say, the wildlife, or it might have some impact on nature. So how do you reconcile the development needs, really from a low perspective? How do you reconcile the development needs like of the population with the one also that are related to, to climate? It's a very hard question. Wow, Marina. I mean, you, you've asked that question and I've just started smiling because this is the conundrum. And Allow me to use the energy trilemma. For those who are not familiar with the energy trilemma, it's there are three competing almost equal forces when one is designing energy systems or one is looking at the economy in deciding what type of energy mix should we have, whether it's for domestic use, whether you're looking at it for commercial use. And there are three things. The first one is financing or economics. That's the first pillar. Is energy affordable? How much can you charge for it? Can you charge for it sustainably? And sustainably here, I mean, for a long time without getting to a crisis as we are now. The second one is environmental, which is a question you're asking. Is the energy source or is your energy mix detrimental to the environment? And the third one is politics. Politics here is security of energy supply. And the war in Ukraine is, is one very good example. And the tensions behind not wanting to be dependent on a certain country for one's energy needs leads countries or leads decision makers to sometimes choose a type of energy that is not good economically 
or good for the environment, but because they do not want to rely on someone else. And so the ideal energy source should be one that is financially feasible and affordable. It's one that is steady and sustainable, and it's one that is clean. Now, in history, we have not had such an energy source easily available. Renewables now, arguably, are cost-effective and are cheap to set up and can be stable for a long time in many parts of the world. In fact, some people argue that um, solar panels alone placed in the Sahara can power the world. Of course, it is possible, but we have other technological limits, not just the transmission, the storage, grid balancing, and so on. But the energy trilemma very strongly captures how difficult these questions are. Now, my proposition is that law should come and be almost like the pivot, should be at the center of this trilemma and try balance these interests. So there must be deliberate decision-making and deliberate laws that then look at these factors and see how do we balance this. Now, at the core of all of this, all this balance that we are trying to do is to ensure two things. Number one, that humans exist on this planet in a dignified way without destroying it. That is just the underlying thing. And so the fourth element that people generally um, are now saying there is a quadrilemma is humanity. Are we justly treating the planet? Are we justly treating people? And in the lead up to your question, you mentioned something quite interesting. We must recognize that this is a universal problem. I am sat in England at the moment. I'm sat in one of probably the best regions of, of the UK. And I can tell you, the energy prices are going to affect all and sundry. It's not just about people in developing countries who are using firewood. In this country, the mobility and mortality rates in the winter are likely to be quite high. This is something that has actually been said from the highest levels of government. And so when we begin to recognize that lives, livelihoods, and the planet are dependent on this, it becomes vitally important to start passing the right laws, basing them on the correct policies, and to put resources to ensure that those are enforceable. But the other thing that we also must recognize is that there might we might need to have sacrifices. This is why political will is necessary. I do not know about you, but most people now, you get a mini panic attack if you've lost your phone or if you cannot find it for a few seconds. And so we're so energy and technology dependent presently. And the phone is just but one example. We must begin to think as societies, when we, when we talk about energy efficiency, when we talk about energy consumption, in what ways can we make the demand side of energy better? How can we use the energy that we have better already? So law, as I said before, usually comes as an afterthought when there is a problem. But we must begin to have iterative legislation or iterative policy making affecting how laws are passed. And so how does the law balance? The law needs to have a correct picture of energy systems rather than a reactionary uh, way of dealing with it. All must be involved, but also this cannot be left to legislators to do it or politicians.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is also uh, something that has been uh, denounced over the years is the prevalence of lobbies and uh, of the industry in the policymaking discussion, which is, as you just uh, suggest, can bring to very big imbalances and to the fact that energy has, it has been forgotten in Europe that access to, to electricity in particular was a question of, of life or death. It's still visible in developing countries that you have access to electricity, you have access to hospitals. It's, it's something really linked, whereas we have forgotten that in Europe. So in the discussion over the years, the prevalence of the interest of the industry has been kind of more visible. So do you have any suggestion on how to make really citizens a little bit more like get into the discussion with policymakers on how to design energy systems that are fair for everyone? Wow, another, you know, you're on a roll today. Another wonderful question. I think the lobbying question is is about power. In the US, as at my last check about two years ago, the fossil fuel industry was spending 13 times more on lobbying. And these are official statistics, 359 million US dollars as compared to about 26 million US dollars by renewable, the renewables industry. And so we cannot surely leave this to private sector and politicians to determine our future. So there must be some form of polycentric governance. There cannot be a um, concentration of power on one actor to determine how things go. So how laws are made needs to be participatory. And there's a thing called energy justice, which is basically about at the core of the just transition, which is about procedural justice is one of its tenets. When decisions are being made that are having an impact on communities and biodiversity, is everybody impacted, heard? And that is one of the steps. There is also recognition justice, where one must begin to see that we are not equally endowed and affected In energy systems, more often than not, especially when it comes to siting energy infrastructure, the infrastructure is sited in either poorer neighborhoods or people who do not have a stronger voice or in communities that are generally indigenous and so forth. So there must be a recognition that there are injustices and not just historical in terms of the distribution of the disadvantages of energy and a skewed enjoyment of the benefits of energy. And so energy justice is one of the pillars that can be used to make this possible. So there must be involvement of everybody. But then that involvement needs empowerment and the capacity to participate, but also the capacity to participate meaningfully. And for people to participate meaningfully, they need to understand these systems. And there is absolutely no doubt here Anybody who's tried to look at electricity systems or energy laws, these things are complex. So there must be systemic, one, education, communication, and research and development that is communicated to all. Sometimes communities object to very good projects because they've misunderstood them. Or interventions that are aimed to help 
um, communities. You mentioned in Western Europe, and I know the case of the US, for example, they have their weatherization program. Some of these programs that are aimed at low-income households were rejected on grounds of misunderstanding of how the these things work. For example, for someone to qualify, there was something called an energy audit. And for someone who's poor, or if someone who's an illegal immigrant, when you hear an audit, you think, oh my goodness, they're going to come and jail me. Yet governments were trying to ensure that the poorest people are assisted. The other thing is logistics. We mustn't take the path of least resistance. In the US, there was replacement of light bulbs with more energy efficient ones, LED ones. And these lamps were either free or quite affordable, but the outlet that the government used was not the outlet that the poorest people would go to, which are usually corner shops. So I'm assuming they took them to the larger stores. So the people who actually benefited from that program were people who live in neighborhoods where this, let's call them supermarkets, were, and the people who desperately needed them still had very high energy bills. So sometimes there's a disconnect between even well-intentioned laws and the implementation because of a lack of education and empowerment of people. So education is also important, and I feel I'm rumbling a little bit, but there's no silver bullet to this. There must be a cocktail of solutions that will make this possible. Yeah, and it's something that has been pretty obvious in all the discussions that I've conducted through this podcast is that one of the key elements, I mean, there is no silver bullet. We, I totally agree with you on that. But one of the key elements is to consult the population at all levels, including those intermediaries, such as corner shops that you just mentioned. Because those corner shops are the place where people will go and ask for questions and just get their grocery because they feel maybe a little bit safer in those places than in the big supermarkets where they might feel observed by people who don't look like them. So there is this kind of um, defiance of policymakers against what is different and what is not like the norm. And on the contrary, there should be more involvement of all the categories of the population, including these very informal intermediaries, such as corner shops. And uh, my little aparté on this is that I'm very worried that with the uh, energy crisis, those corner shops might be forgotten in the uh, emergency measures that are put in place to ensure access to electricity to a lot of people. Because as they are very, very central to a lot of people's lives, but they might not get the, the same level of support that households or well-established places, business places happen. So do you think as a lawyer that uh, citizens could sue the government for or the European Union for the bad policies that have been implemented over the years that are now putting consumers at risk of high energy prices? Oh, yeah. The short answer is yes. Um, citizens can sue governments. There have been several hurdles to this. The first one is in which forum do you sue government? If you go to, um, say, the local court, if you go to the European Union, and people have, and I, there are several cases I can mention, and some of which have actually been successful. I can mention one that I know that involves the UK a few years ago, there was Tempest Energy that was trying to deal with demand-side innovation, and there was a policy on how the electricity market functions that locked out um, sustainable energy companies 
from participating. And they went to the EU, the European Court, and they won against government. So the short answer is it's possible. And there have been recent developments from a rights perspective. The United Nations has now said that the right to a clean and healthy environment is a fundamental right. Yes, I do recognize that quite a few countries had enshrined this in some national legislation, but it's quite another thing for this to be elevated to the global scale where it's part is a fundamental right, like the right to life and speech and so on. So citizens can sue, but this is where lawyers and law comes in. It's taken a lot of innovative argumentation and framing of these questions within existing laws to make the progress that we've gotten to where we are. And so I think that lawyers need to be more involved, not just at the sharp end, whether when someone has already gone to court or when there's a problem, but lawyers need to be involved even at the initial stage from um, an academic standpoint, from a policymaking perspective, because law is not simply about going to court. It's the things that lead up to the case being handled, to how the law itself is framed, to how people have been engaged with, to whether there's been input in the decisions that government has made that will determine how successful or how effective um, these measures are going to be. And also there's something else. I think judges sometimes are forgotten a lot because once someone is a judge, there's a presumption that they are slightly above the rest of us humanity and they operate in this, even and there's an English saying, you know, as wise as a judge. But many, many times, even the wise need to upskill. They need to be empowered. They need capacity building. And so judiciaries also need to get cutting edge information and training on what's actually happen- happening. And I think the law also needs to have scientific basis because part of the problem has been attribution. When you take the government or a company to court, how do you attribute the problem that you're speaking about to the decision of this company or this government? So science then comes. So interdisciplinary work is needed. Thank you. That was a wonderful way to wrap things up, Ted. So thank you so much. We need more interdisciplinary work. And that's also what I try to do with uh, this podcast. So Ted, thank you really a lot. Uh, if our listeners have further questions, where can they find you? Oh, brilliant. I mean, first, thank you for bringing us together. I've listened to some of your other um, podcasts and different voices bring different flavors to this. And so thank you for curating this space for, for some of us to come and, and have a voice. Where can you find me? I am at the University of Oxford. So um, I am at the Environmental Change Institute and at the Oxford Martin School. My email address it can be found there. I have a Twitter handle. The Twitter handle, I think, is contented. I, I've not forgotten, but Ted Moya, T-E-D-D-M-O-Y-A is the name that I use on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. You'll find me there. I'm not particularly active on the other media, but you'll find me reasonably um, available on Twitter and LinkedIn. And thank you very much indeed for having me here and for asking me some of the most challenging questions that I've had to navigate in a very short time. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Ted. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energetic. 
I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.